Today's video is brought to you by Wondrium. Of all the creatures from mythology, legends and folklore, dragons are perhaps the most popular and have certainly stood the test of time given their inclusion in so much of today's pop culture. But the significance of dragons has changed dramatically over time, from being thought to have been real-life predators that haunted the skies and guarded treasures, to more biblical creatures such as Leviathan, in which believers would revere and take caution of. The morality of dragons has also shifted up and down the scales, depending on the time period and the locality, with some cultures believing the dragons to be beacons of hope and courage, and others believing it to be a bringer of destruction and evil. From the Americas to Europe, to China, Japan and India, every society appears to have some inclusion of the dragon, whether this be symbolic or otherwise, and every society even those going back to the ancient Sumerians, recognised the dragon in one form or another. Dragons at various stages of history were not just plot devices or features of a narrative, but instead a creature that walked or flew amongst people. In the medieval times, for example, the dragon would come to represent the devil, given his transformation in the Bible. And because the Bible was adhered to, with far more tenacity back then, dragons were certainly a very real possibility, a representation of Satan, no less. In this case, the only thing anyone ever really knew about dragons came from the Bible, and with this, it's logical to believe that some Christians would no doubt have taken the existence of dragons with some severity. This also coincides in times long before Christianity, when giant bones, likely belonging to the dinosaurs, were unearthed. Without being able to identify these as creatures from the Mesozoic era, dragons would become a logical choice, and certainly serve as confirmation that the winged beasts were indeed real. But dragons would take on different shapes, sizes, colours and even behaviours, depending on where one would find themselves. In Japan, for example, Ryujin, the Dragon King, Sea God, and Master of the Serpents was not your typical airborne dragon that terrorised cities or breathed hellish fire. Instead, Ryujin was depicted in art as more of a sea serpent, a creature that stuck to the waters as opposed to soaring the skies. In fact, amongst many Asian dragons, Wings were not common upon the beast at all, and instead appeared to be more like serpents, but with large extended claws. Furthermore, many of the dragons in Japanese mythology did not possess the ability to fly, or at least do not demonstrate it as frequently as the dragons in other cultures. In some legends, the most distinct feature about Ryujin was his carrying of a magical round jewel that signified the monarchy in Japan, as well as serving as his own mechanism in which he used to control the tides with. Beyond this, Ryujin and the Japanese dragons are often compared with the Chinese dragons, those which have striking similarities, most probably 
given the geographical location of both countries. Though the most notable difference between the two is that the Japanese dragons, including Ryujin, were thought to have two to three toes, whilst the Chinese dragons possess four to five. Identifying the dragon itself, however, may have proven difficult to those at the time, given that Ryujin was also believed to have taken the form of a human, and even lived amongst humanity in disguise for periods at a time. But before we continue with today's episode, a brief message from our sponsor, Wondrium. You might have heard me talk about The Great Courses Plus before. Well, the folks behind The Great Courses are making big moves to create even better, bigger, broader, and more mind-blowing educational experiences, and giving you even more reasons to love learning. Enter Wondrium, where you can find all the tried and tested Great Courses Plus content and more. Wondrium is a subscription on-demand video learning service that features lectures and courses from some of the top professors around the world, some even from the Ivy League and other prestigious universities. You'll also find courses run by experts from the National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. By signing up to Wondrium, you can gain access to a library of over 11,000 videos and lectures about, well, pretty much anything, from science, maths, history, literature, or even the more creative arts like photography. If you're enjoying hearing about the demons in my recent videos, you might like to explore the origins and the theme of evil within various religions. And the really insightful course that supports this is Why Evil Exists by Charles Matthews. Why Evil Exists dives into the concept of evil throughout human history and examines both the historical and religious nature of evil in each video. There's such a huge selection to choose from Wondrium, and so I'm sure you won't have any difficulty finding something that tickles your fancy. You can access Wondrium via your PC, tablet, or even your phone, and you can learn university-grade content at your own pace. Right now, Wondrium are offering a free trial, so if you love learning as much as I do, be sure to head on over to wondrium.com slash the legends of history to gain access to a lecture library of over 11,000 videos or hit the link in the description below. In mythology, Ryujin is often associated or completely syncretized as a Watasumi no Kami, or the great deity of the sea, and was a being which guarded the oceans, as well as offering protection and safety to those who sailed upon it. As well as this, Ryujin was believed to have been the bringer of rain and thunder, perhaps in some capacity a storm god, or even an agricultural god, by supplying croplands with water. The Japanese would come to view this particular dragon as a benign creature, which shows us yet again the difference in which dragons were viewed in various sections of the world. Where they were antagonized in medieval Europe, Dragons were multifaceted in Asia, in terms of their nature. No dragon is more like this than Ryujin, the dragon of the ocean, 
the ocean of course being as wild and unpredictable as anything we've ever discovered. With this in mind, it was not uncommon to hear stories of Ryujin being bad-tempered, insensitive, or even violent. Though, as much as we do not classify the ocean as being malevolent, the Japanese did not classify Ryujin as malevolent either, and perhaps saw him as more of an explanation as to why the sea worked in the way that it did, why it sometimes allowed for safe passage, and other times why it turned on man and drowned him. Ryujin, in this sense, may also have provided some comfort to the Japanese at sea, for it was a creature that lived at the bottom of the seabed, in a palace that was built from coral. With his presence constantly with them, he was likely seen as a reassurance, especially in times when the tides turned against them. The dragons then became a tangible being, in which sailors could bargain with, or at the very least, appeased to, as they surrendered their fates to him. Sea turtles, jellyfish, water snakes, and fish were all seen as the servants of Ryujin, and so, by seeing these creatures, belief in Ryujin was only reinforced, and made the idea that a dragon protecting those at sea only more credible. Land snakes were also considered to be an extension of Ryujin, and these serpents were his eyes and ears on the surface world. Whilst ideas of their function vary, to some, it was believed that the snakes in all their forms reported to him, and that they were also his messengers, delivering his divinity to those who did not frequent the sea. To some, these were thought to have been delivered not necessarily in a physical sense, but more so in a dream state. By this, the snake was also considered sacred, for it carried the messages from the sea god to the mortals in some ethereal and mysterious process. The snakes were also linked with death, however, and so it could be said that Ryujin was warning mortals of their demise and heeding them to take caution. Today, shrines still do exist of Ryujin, most notably in rural areas, where fishing and agriculture are still relied upon by local communities. As stated previously, Ryujin was considered, for the most part, to be a benign deity. But just like the ocean, he could be unpredictable, and often fickle. With this, there are times where the deity was depicted as a kindly creature that helped those in need, but other times he was certainly more violent in nature. In one story, known simply as How the Jellyfish Lost Its Bones, perhaps an anecdote to explain why jellyfish have the form that they have, Ryujin had acquired an appetite for monkey liver. In some versions of this story, Ryujin merely wanted to taste it to satiate his hunger, but in other versions, he intended to use the monkey's liver to heal a rash. He sent a jellyfish, which as we know was one of his servants, to kidnap a monkey from an island and to bring his liver to him so that he may use it. When the jellyfish found a monkey and asked him to come back to the ocean with him, the monkey told the jellyfish that his liver was not inside of his body, 
and that he had placed it inside a jar deeper in the forest. Promising to go and get the liver, the monkey fled from the jellyfish and did not return. Upon reporting his failure to acquire the monkey's liver, Ryujin became so infuriated that he beat the jellyfish until its bones were destroyed. But in a more flattering story that accentuates his nature as benign and helpful, Ryujin rewards the mythological hero Tawara Toda with several gifts for having slain a giant menacing centipede that threatened Ryujin's palace. The story tells us that Ryujin, despite his tremendous power, became concerned over a giant centipede, whose body was so massive it extended beyond the height of a mountain. Whether Ryujin was intimidated by the creature is unclear, though he certainly seems relieved for its demise when the hero Tawara Toda slays it by shooting it with an arrow. It might simply be said that Ryujin was always grateful to those who did him a favour, and that he would pay handsomely to those who served him, thus explaining some of his popularity. The story tells us that Tawara Toda was awarded a mixture of items, including a bell, a giant sack of endless rice, a magical cauldron that could cook food without fire, and a never-ending roll of decorative fabric. Ryujin's gratitude is also seen in the myth involving the fisherman Urashima Taro, who comes to the aid of several of Ryujin's turtle servants, who were being tormented by children. Having scared the children away and rescuing the turtles from distress, Ryujin tells the turtles to bring Urashima Taro to his dwelling beneath the ocean and to give him a tour of his underwater palace. Upon arriving, Urashima Taro is given a feast which is served to him by Ryujin's daughter, a character who is half woman and half dragon and is known as Toyotoba Hime. After having his meal, Urashima Taro is given a jewellery box as a parting present and the turtles take him back to land. But upon arriving, Urashima Taro realised that his village had changed dramatically and that he could not find his house or his family. In his search, he comes across an old lady who tells him of a legend of a fisherman who miraculously disappeared one day. Believing this to be him, and believing that time has somehow passed him by during his visit to Ryujin's palace, Urashima Taro breaks down into despair. As well as this, he also opens the jewellery box that was gifted to him by Ryujin, and with that, a grey mist emerges from the box, instantly changing him into an old man. In even more despair that his life has essentially been robbed of him, Urashima Taro sinks into immediate depression and cannot fathom why he should even live a moment longer. But then he spots a single feather at the bottom of the jewellery box and when he touches it, he transforms into a crane, that which is said to be a symbol of happiness. He then flies off away from the palace of Ryujin, presumably living the remainder of his life as a happy bird. A lot can be derived from this tale in terms of Ryujin's character, and there are some elements of the story that provide some conditions for visiting the deity, 
First and foremost, it would appear that time works differently when inside the dragon's temple, and that it passes by much faster there than it does on the surface. This is why when Hiroshima Taro returns to his home, generations appear to have passed him by. Furthermore, it would also imply that one can breathe underwater when they have the blessing of Ryujin to visit his temple. For Hiroshima Taro is able to not only venture that far underwater, but also is able to eat a meal there too. We are also introduced to Ryujin's daughter, Toya Tomohime, a character who is half dragon and half human, as well as considered to be a goddess in her own right. Her creation is up for some debate, and there doesn't appear to be much in the way of her parentage beyond Ryujin himself. Interestingly, the first emperor of Japan, Emperor Jimu, is said to have been the grandson of Toya Tomohime and her husband, the legendary hunter, Huri. By this, it is said that Ryujin is the ancestor of the Japanese imperial dynasty, and all who are descended from this line are children of the dragon god. Some may see Ryujin as both benign and malevolent in this story, much as the sea tends to be. Ryujin sought to reward Urashima Taro for his kindness in saving his turtle servants, but he also does not tell him that by visiting him, his life as he knows it will pass him by, and he will return generations later knowing neither his family or anyone else. Much as the sea proves to be a double-edged sword at times, in that it is both wonderful and yet deceptive, Ryujin operates in the same way. By changing Hiroshima Taro into an old man, it might be said that Ryujin had preempted the fisherman's despair, and so sought to make him old so that he might fit into his new life, perhaps by forming a bond with the oldest villagers who may have shared some experiential overlap with his time. But others might see this as more spiteful, in that Ryujin had already taken Urashima Taro's time and life away from him, and so taking his youth would only salt the wound. Much like the sea itself, it might be argued that Ryujin is not trying to be wicked, but merely acting as his nature determines. The sea, for example, does not actively try to drown people, but because of its composition, it simply is the way it is. To the ancients, they sought to justify these senseless tragedies by making the gods responsible, for at least then, there could be meaning to death, and there could always be the promise of something else on the other side. In Hiroshima Taro's case, this was his transformation into a crane, for though he had lost everything, he became something new. Something that did not long for its lost youth, time or family, but something that was happy and content. There's some parallel to the Greek myth of Asakus, who after losing the love of his life, attempts to kill himself by throwing himself off a cliff. When the titan goddess Tethys sees him attempt to do this, she transforms him into a bird, in the hopes that he will forget his pain and live a new life free from his past burdens. In the most famous tale of Ryujin, the sea dragon is made aware of the boy who would become the legendary hunter Huri 
and also his son-in-law. On one regular day, Huri borrowed a fish hook from his older brother, Hoderi. But this was no ordinary fish hook. It was said that the fish hook was infused with magic and that it could catch a number of fish without any real effort at all. Yet when Huri tried to use the hook, he managed to get no interest from the surrounding fish. So frustrated, Huri ended up fumbling the hook and dropping it into the water, where it sank to the bottom of the ocean. When Hoderi learned what had happened, he was angry with his brother and refused to accept his apologies. Even when Huri made 500 new hooks from his broken sword to replace the magical one he had lost, his brother still shunned him. Distraught over his brother's refusal to forgive him, Huri fled to the beach and broke down in tears. As he was sobbing, he was approached by a water spirit known as Akami, who, upon discovering the young hunter's anguish, told him to visit Ryujin, or as he was known in this myth, Watasumi, and that if he asked the dragon nicely, he would probably find the magical hook for him. So Huri built himself a boat, and after a long voyage, he reached the god's palace, where he was greeted by the dragon's daughter, Toyotomahime. It is not disclosed to us whether Huri swam underwater to reach the palace, though this seems unlikely, unless of course he was guided underwater by the kami who had inspired him with the idea in the first place. Another idea is that Toyotomahime's presence allowed for Huri to breathe underwater, and because he had good intentions, he was allowed into the palace, much as Urashimataro was, who was also met by Toyotamahime. But unlike Urashimataro, Huri is struck by Toyotamahime's beauty, to the point that he cannot remember why he had come down to the sea god in the first place. Whilst here at the palace, Huri married Toyotomahime, and Ryujin, or Watasumi, blessed them with so many gifts, it took hundreds of days to open them all. But much like how time passed by for Hiroshimataro, time passed by for Huri too, although not so drastically. Huri, in his blissful youth, became infatuated with his new wife, and as a man does when he's in love, he forgot about his responsibilities. It was therefore many years before he even remembered why he had come to Watasumi in the first place. But when he did, he told the dragon of his brother and the fish hook. Watatsumi spread the word to every fish in the sea, and it wasn't long until the fish hook was discovered and brought to the underwater palace. But Watasumi did not give the hook back to Huri, but instead cursed the hook. He then gave Huri two jewels, one which would control the waters, and one that could irrigate the rice fields. But these were not their only purpose. The jewels also ensured that whilst Huri would become prosperous, his brother would succumb to ruin. There's a few ways to interpret the moral of this story. It might be said that Watasumi had become so protective over his son-in-law that he took vengeance upon his brother Hoderi 
for having not forgiven him for his mistake. Another idea proposes that because the magical hook ensnared fish in abundance and therefore killed many of the dragon's servants, Watatsumi refused to give it back to humanity and brought vengeance upon Hoderi for having used it in the first place. It's interesting that much like the other tales, we do see Ryujin act like the water itself, in that truly it is chaotic and possesses a vengeance that can and will be inflicted upon the unfortunate. In the case of Hoderi, one might argue that he deserved it, and that his punishment was in relation to his greed, for harvesting the sea life in abundance with the magic hook. It's clear that this maleficent side of Ryujin is as potent as his capacity for good, and that whilst he does do right by humanity and seeks to protect them, it is not beyond him to punish them either. According to legend, the Empress Jingu carried out an attack into Korea with the aid of Ryujin, who brought devastating waves to vanquish the Korean navy. Supposedly, it is believed that the sea gods, including Ryujin, possess tide jewels, those which are magically infused items that allow the wielder to control the tides. There exist two versions that contain the use of the tide jewels, where in the first, Ryujin, in his duty to protect Japan and the Empress, utilized the tide jewels himself and annihilated the Korean forces to bring victory to the Japanese. In the second, more insidious version, however, the Empress was said to have snuck into the Dragon's Palace and stole the tide jewels for her own use. Without the dragon's knowledge, she then swam up to the shore and used the Tai Jewels to defeat the Koreans. The first Tai Jewel was known as Kanju, and it was believed that this stone caused the Tai to retreat. Meanwhile, the second jewel, known as the Manju, caused the Tai to return. The Empress, who possessed both jewels at this time, threw the Kanju into the sea, causing the tide to retreat. The Korean navy were left stranded in the now deserted land, their ships wrecked, and the entire force greatly disorientated. When the men climbed out from their ships to inspect the damage, the Empress threw the Manju Jewel, and this caused the tide to return, which saw to the washing up of the Korean forces and their subsequent drowning. To the Japanese, most notably, those belonging to the Shinto religion, dragons like Ryujin, or the water spirits, the Kami, are mostly seen as divine and good creatures that are frequently associated with the weather and the success of fishermen. As mentioned, this is especially true in rural areas, where local communities are dependent on the good yield of crops and the success of local fishermen. In some beliefs, both the yield of crops and fish are dependent on Ryujin's mood, and so to pray to him is to increase the likelihood of receiving a more desirable yield. It's natural then that he would be prayed to, for he does indeed possess the power to grant believers the food and nourishment they require. Yet he does also possess the more insidious trait 
of denying those in need, and like the ocean itself, or the act of foraging, the outcome cannot be predicted. With this, some might say that Ryujin walks, or swims, the fine line between good and evil, and despite being seen as a protector, establishes himself as a neutral deity that is willing to both provide and withhold. But as always guys, if you've enjoyed today's episode on this brand new series of Dragons and Serpents Explored, then don't forget to give this video a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe for more content just like this. Until next time.